Good morning. Our passage this morning comes from John chapter 11. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had, been all, had already been in the tomb for four days. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave and with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. I love to say that. Just love the idea of acknowledging and that we're all together in the Lord. I also love death poetry. Death, D-E-A-T-H, death. I think it was because maybe I was acquainted with death at a fairly early age. I just really love to read and listen to the way that great minds try to put into words that ultimate reality. Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. That's Emily Dickinson. She's a 19th century American poet. Dickinson wrote a lot of death poetry. Here's another short one. My life closed twice before its close. It yet remains to see if immortality unveil a third event to me. So huge, so hopeless to conceive were these that twice befell. Parting is all we know of heaven and all we need of hell. Emily Dickinson had a strange mind. For the last several weeks, we've been looking at strangeness. Specifically, we've been talking about strange encounters with Jesus as recounted in Scripture. And today we have the privilege of looking at one of the strangest. You heard Matt read an abbreviated portion of what is a much longer story in the 11th chapter of John. In this account, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the Lord of life, the champion over death, brings a dear, dear friend from death back to life. But only after Jesus has waited four days 
knowing that the man was dead. This is definitely a strange encounter, full of contradictions, apparent contradictions and ambiguities and double meanings. But the question, of course, that we ask ourselves is, what does this have to do with us? What is the, the raising of this man and his two sisters that loved him? What does that have to do with us? How do we let the strangeness of the encounter wake us up to who Jesus really is? See, that's always the question you ask in Scripture. How does the, the Bible stuff that you're reading, whatever it is, Psalms, Proverbs, Gospels, you know, Epistles, whatever you're reading, what does it have to do with Jesus? Because it's all about Jesus. That's the thing, see. It's all about Jesus. Well, we might ask ourselves, how does this account tell us about Jesus? And I think one of the things we can do then is to consider how the mercy and might of Jesus grace us to face our fear We'll talk about what, are, what it is we're afraid of. Order our loves, perhaps a new idea, and live our ultimate life. The writer of John's Gospel assumes that we know Mary and Martha and Lazarus, probably because John's Gospel was almost certainly written after the Gospel of Luke, for example. And in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 10, we encounter Mary and Martha sort of having a little spat, but I have five sisters. I get it. They were having a little sisterly confab about how to relate to Jesus. Martha had her idea. Mary had her idea. They weren't the same. But on this day, in this 11th chapter of John's scripture, Mary and Martha are united, absolutely, around the love for their brother, Lazarus. And so when Lazarus becomes ill, they send a message to Jesus. And it's a very simple message. In fact, it's a lesson in prayer, frankly. They just say, Lord, the one you love is ill. They don't try to tell Jesus what to do. They just say, the one you love is ill. It's sort of the implication being, do what you will. You know, Lord, this is our petition. You do what you want to. So we are left, as Jesus was, of course, divinely left, to discern what was it the sisters wanted? What were they afraid of? Well, when people are ill, we're always afraid of the same thing. We're afraid of death. We're afraid of death. I just, I just like that thing more, this afraid of death. We live in a straitjacket, in the spell of death, because we know that we will die. We know that we will die. Nominal clause. But we don't know when, where, or how. That's the scary part. My mother used to say when she was old, 94, I'm not afraid of dying. I'm afraid of what I'll have to do to get there. I knew just what she meant. I knew just what she meant. I'm sure you do too. Think about how that certain uncertainty or that uncertain certainty hovers over our culture. Think about how our music, I don't care if you're talking about opera or hip-hop, how music, how film, how theater, how books and games all are about death. Even romantic comedies are all about securing somebody against death. All mocking death or holding it at a distance or studying it or embellishing it or trying to soften it. Even science and medicine and wellness and health efforts. There's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. But in the end, it's not going to win. Death is fearsome because death is inevitable. The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die. 
Back in the old days, people would say, there's nothing for sure but death and taxes. Well, not everybody pays taxes, of course. <laughs> not every, we know that. <laughs> but everybody dies. We know that. So in the face of fear, how do we try to cope? If we just acknowledge, yes, we are afraid of death, we don't go around thinking about it all the time, but we're afraid of it. We're absolutely afraid of it. Why do you think people arm themselves? Why do you think people pray? It's all a part of the fear coping mechanism. So when I think about coping against fear, I think about a picture of a little child in the bed. I have grandchildren, and when one, the older one goes to bed, she wants to hold her stuffies, her stuffed animals, against the dark. That's a pictorial image of the way we are. We can't stand up to death on our own. We know we can't, but we hold close to ourselves people and things that we love. Mary and Martha loved Lazarus. Of course they knew that one day he and they would die, but not now, Lord. Not today. We acknowledge your sovereignty as creator God, but, but just today, just give us this one person. Just let us have this one thing to hold against the dark. If you have ever stood by the bedside or in a situation where you knew someone was dying, that's the way you feel. Just, it's not that you're denying who God is. It's not that you're saying God doesn't have the right to take the... It's not that you're saying, here's what God ought to do. You just want to say, just one thing. Just, just let that person stay. That is such a common human experience. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, this is part of the scripture Matt wasn't reading. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. And I love what Martha says. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Another common human response. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. So Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Well, see, back in those days, I, I love this little, little uh, scholarly detail here. The word resurrection had come to mean the same as consolation. It was such a cliche that when Martha heard Jesus say, your brother will rise again, she said, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day, but, but I, I, I know that's a thing religious people say, but I'm just talking about today. I'm talking about today. I want my brother alive today. I don't want consolation. I don't want a greeting card. I don't want someone to text me with praying hands, Martha is saying. I can't, I need, the reality today is death. And so I think Jesus looked at her and I think he knew exactly who she was and what she was going through. He might have even touched her on the arm, but I know that he looked with her, at her with love and he said this, I am, I am the words God the Father, God the Holy Triune God says to Moses at the burning bush, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Martha, do you believe that? You see, at that moment, Jesus wanted Martha to be sure of her heart. Because in that moment, Martha's love for her brother was threatening her faith in God. 
in that moment, her grief, her love for her brother and her grief with obscuring her trust in Jesus. That happens to all of us sometimes. It happens to all of us. To help ourselves feel secure, we hold on to someone or something. Mary and Martha had masked their fear of death by holding on to their brother. But in doing so, they had staked their love into sinking sand. Because people die. People will leave you. Things go away. In asking the question, Jesus, the eternal, unchangeable God, was asking Martha to examine her heart and be sure that her loves were in the right order. In the shadow of death, you and I know that everything will leave us. I'll never forget the day that my son, who was very young, said to me, what will happen to me when you die? He didn't say, Mama, are you going to die? He said, what will happen to me when you die? You know, because children know even. Children know. It's right that we love. There's nothing wrong with loving. Holding on to people is a pure and holy attitude and action. God does not desire that we reject all other loves. That's a misunderstanding. God wants us to order our loves so that the lesser loves, the love for the changeable things, the mortal things, the, the temporal things, draw us up to the greatest love. Just get that second part again. God wants us to order our loves so that lesser loves draw us toward the greatest love. By the way, that's a really good check when you're considering loving somebody or something. Just tuck this in your back pocket. Does this person, does this goal, does this pursuit draw me toward God or away? You don't have to ask, where did they go to church? Or just, just, does, it, does this person, this pursuit, this goal, this activity, this love that I am considering or that I already have one foot <laughs> toward, draw me toward God or away? So what did Martha's heart answer to Jesus? She said, yes, Lord. I know that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. I trust you. I trust you, my brother's in the grave. You're standing right here. I trust you. But I have to ask myself, how could she? How can we trust God? Jesus loved Lazarus, and he said he loved Lazarus' sisters, but he waited four days to come and help. How can we trust Jesus? That delay seems to contradict everything that we believe about Jesus. How do you reconcile that? Believe you me, if you've been a Christian for long, somebody has asked you a question like that, if not that, that kind of question. How do you reconcile God's apparent delay or sometimes God's outright no? Listen, when Jesus first heard the sister's message, he said to his disciples, this sickness will not end in death. No, this sickness will be for the glory of God so that the Son of God will be glorified. And then when Jesus knew the time was right, he said to his disciples, let's go. Let's go back to Lazarus. Let's go to Judea. 
And the disciples say, wait a minute, Rabbi. Don't you remember that not too long ago the Jews there were trying to stone you? And you're going to go back? And Jesus says, you don't know what I know about the timing and the will of God. We don't know what God knows about timing and the will of God. So let's sort out what Jesus said there because it's really important. When Jesus said this sickness will not end in death, he meant three things. First of all, he meant that this sickness of Lazarus would not be the end of Lazarus. That's the first thing he meant. The second thing he meant was that death wouldn't be Lazarus' final end. And the third thing he meant was this sickness of Lazarus's would not only lead not to Lazarus's death, but it would lead to life for Lazarus and countless of multitudes of others. Jesus' disciples were right. Jesus' response to Lazarus's sickness was going to lead where they didn't want to go. Because when Jesus went toward Lazarus's tomb, he was walking toward his own death. How would God be glorified by Lazarus' sickness? Well, first of all, of course, God would be gloriously demonstrated in the power of raising a man back to life. That's, that's to the glory of God. But secondly, even more importantly, as Jesus goes on down the road, God will be even more gloriously manifested, his power, in Jesus being raised to the cross and Jesus being raised from his own tomb. The gospel writer of John says that when word of the Lazarus miracle reached the ears of the Jewish leaders, this is the way it reads, from that day on they plotted to take Jesus' life. Jesus knew that. That was like the last straw. He knew it. Jesus went willingly to his own death to cancel our obligation to death. Jesus went willingly to his own death to cancel our obligation. And then he rose to demonstrate God's power over death and his power into life. That's the first way that Jesus helps us face our fears. Our assurance of Jesus' power over death gives us peace in the face of our fear. And let me just make this suggestion to you, just a little parenthetical suggestion here. Quit feeding on death. If you live in fear, quit feeding on death. Quit feeding on death. I don't, I don't even have to tell you what that means. You do you. You examine. Let the Holy Spirit examine in you. What does that mean? Am I listening to music, watching films, reading books, sitting around worrying about the pandemic? Am I feeding on death? Jesus wants us to have peace, but you can't grab peace with your hands if your hands are full of death. It's a discipline to accept peace. It's a discipline to accept peace. But what about grief? After all, death does mean loss and a big locked black door. You can't go beyond it. What do you do with that? Well, there's the other sister, Mary. After Martha confessed her faith in Jesus, she quickly goes to Mary and says, the teacher wants you. And so Mary gets up quickly, the scripture says, and goes to him. And it says, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet. Mary was very emotional. And she says the very same thing her sister said. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But see, Jesus knew who Mary was. She wasn't Martha. With Martha, he wanted a confession of faith. With Mary, he just saw the grief. And he sees the grief of the Jews who had come with Mary to mourn with her. 
And it says, Jesus was moved in spirit and troubled. And he says, where have you laid him? And they say, Lord, come and see. And the Bible says, Jesus wept. Why did he weep? Jesus couldn't possibly have viewed grief in the same way they did. But he certainly viewed and felt sadness and grief in the same way they did. And the same way we do. If you've ever lost someone, if you've ever had someone you love die, you know the feeling that Jesus knows too. You know the feeling that Jesus knows too. Our God is one of us. Remember what they called Jesus when he was born? Emmanuel, God with us. He's not just with us, he's one of us. Jesus isn't just propositional truth. You know, I believe this, I believe this, I believe this. It's all in your head. No, Jesus is a person. He's a person to love, to get to know, to feel close to. Jesus is real. See, it's not an idea. That's the important thing to understand. More than an idea. And that day, knowing what he was going to do, and knowing even where it would eventually lead, Jesus was grieving for the whole world. He was grieving for the dying and decaying world. Why didn't Jesus just rush to Lazarus and keep him from dying? Why didn't he just do a miracle from a distance and keep him alive? What was Jesus doing in those days when he waits and waits? What was he doing? He was praying. And I'll tell you how I know. Eric and I talked about this just the other day. What in the heck is going on with that verb tense where Jesus says to God, Lord, I know you have heard me. What is that? I kept thinking, what, when did God the Father hear Jesus on the subject of Lazarus? Because Jesus doesn't pray right there. He doesn't pray, oh, help me bring him back to life. Oh, you know, bring him back. He doesn't do that. He just says, I mean, Eric, uh, Matt just read it. He says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of people standing here that they may believe that you have sent me. I know you have heard me. God heard Jesus on the subject of Lazarus while Jesus waited for the timing of God. He was praying. I believe, this is just me now, but I believe that Jesus, God and man, was wrestling with his own feelings. Do I run over there and save my friend? God, do, do I commit myself and submit myself to the will of God the Father? Well, of course, God the Father won. <laughs> Jesus waited until it was time. But Jesus was praying in that meantime. So what do we learn about that? What do we learn about Jesus in all of this? Well, first of all, I learn that Jesus understands what it means to order your loves. Jesus understands that God comes first. The will of God and everybody else, everything else, comes in descending order. We don't like that. That doesn't sound right, but it is. The second thing we learn is that in the economy of God, in the economy of the triune God, eternal life is more important than temporary happiness. Whew, that's a mind blower. Nobody wants to think about that. If God loves me, won't he make me happy? Not necessarily. And not always and not always for long God doesn't want you to be miserable but sin is in the world and the devil is looking around for whom he may devour it's all out there 
and we're going to be subject to it until the Lord returns. What Mary and Martha didn't know and the Jews around them didn't know was that standing there in their presence was Jesus armed with almighty power, the unchangeable God, ready to work for them against death and ready to love them in their grief. That's an amazing truth. The revelation of Jesus' empathy consoles and strengthens us to order our loves rightly. That is not an easy job to order your loves rightly. I recommend to you a book by C.S. Lewis called A Severe Mercy. If you're struggling to order your loves, a severe mercy. How can God ever be merciful, but it will feel severe? Like cauterizing a wound. A severe mercy. So finally, how do the mercy and might of Jesus help us to live our ultimate life? Notice I didn't say our best life. Because best, I know, best implies comparison. And the life Jesus offers is beyond compare. It's the ultimate. What do I mean by that? Well, listen again to Jesus' words. I am the resurrection of the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Oh, are you going to die physically? Yes, but is that eternal death? No, because there's something more. And so we say to ourselves, the promise of resurrection and eternal life issued by none other than the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, assures us of a life that never ends with the greatest love of all. The greatest love of all. And that's why Jesus deserves our highest love. The greatest love of all. Our ultimate life is a life of peace and joy that doesn't just start after we die. It starts now. We receive it in our relationship with Jesus. We live it in our discipline to receive peace, to live joy, to live love and give love. Eric said in a sermon a couple weeks ago, a a line that I've thought about a lot. I think a lot about the things Eric says. But (laughs) this one stuck with me. He said, the words that go deepest into you have the most power over you. Do you remember him saying that? When I heard that, and I began then thinking about today's sermon and scripture, I was taken back to the graveside of a little girl that I once knew. In a very difficult custody battle, her mother had killed her in a horrible way so that the little girl's father could never see her face again. And I was standing there at the side of her grave, preparing to preside over the interment. And as people were assembling, I just lowered my head and closed my eyes and prayed silently. I'm telling you, funerals are never easy to do, but children's funerals are the worst. And I was praying, and as I raised my head and opened my eyes, I just inadvertently glanced down into the hole in the ground they had dug where her casket would be lowered. And something about the idea of the loveliness of that child's face being buried there just just almost overcame me. I I remember just like literally rocking. And I remember distinctly in that moment realizing that the only thing that was holding me upright and the only thing I would have to offer to that child's father and her family for days and weeks and years to come 
was the person of Jesus and the truth that he is the resurrection and the life. Let the words of Jesus sink deep into you. He is the resurrection and the life. He who lives by believing in Jesus will never die. That's what ultimate life is. It's not just living forever. Oh, that might be nice. But it's living fully, living gloriously, living joyfully and peacefully and wonderfully. It means living and moving and having our being in the eternal, changeless love of the Almighty God. Amen.